Well, thanks, Duncan, for that uh, welcome, and thanks, Jen, for reading that for us. Uh, I have spent many years at the University of Sydney, but I've never once been in the chemistry building, so uh, this is a first to all you science people out there. I didn't know such things existed in this university. It's good to uh, go to new fields. I was looking at the, um, the, the schedule for the public meetings during the year, and I noticed that in, uh, towards the end of the year, Craig Tucker is going to come along and speak to you, which is a little bit interesting because uh, I want to start off by telling a story in which uh, Craig actually features, and uh, so you can verify it from him uh, when he comes later in the year. Have your parents ever told you not to hop in a car with someone you don't know? Probably. Have you ever done it? I've done it heaps of times. I'm always going places and I need to be picked up at the airport by somebody who's going to take me somewhere. And about 10 years ago, I was travelling with, uh, with Craig Tucker and we were going to redeem a Presbyterian church in New York City where Tim Keller is the pastor. And we were told that we were going to be met at John F- JFK Airport at New York City by somebody who'd drive us into the town. Well, we were met. There was a fellow there holding a sign saying... C. Tucker. He didn't look like he came from the local Presbyterian church. He was dressed in a uniform, but, well, people do things on the way to somewhere else, so we didn't think twice. And he said, it was really cold, he said, just wait out on the curbside and I'll go and get the car. It was actually snowing. So we waited. I kid you not, verify it with Craig when he comes. He pulled up in a stretch limo from a Presbyterian church. We, we got inside and there was leather seats, TV, minibar. He pulled out from the curb and we just got our way through the car park and we were about to head our way into the city and he said to us, which hotel, gentlemen? The Marriott? The Hilton? the Intercontinental. Look, Presbyterians come from Scottish forebears. And I just said to him, you're not from the Presbyterian Church, are you? And he said, are you Chris Tucker from Bermuda? And here we were in this limo about to head off into the city with this guy we hadn't met before. Fortunately, he saw the funny side of it. He drove us back to the terminal. We hopped out and in good church style, the person who was meant to meet us was running late, hadn't been there on time, and when he saw us, he said, I hope your bags aren't too heavy, it's about a two-kilometre walk to the railway station, and that's how we got into the city. (laughs) Have you ever hopped in a car with someone that you don't know where you're going? That's what Abraham did. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at an amazing journey when this guy hops in the car and heads out with God. Now, if you came here from the eastern suburbs today, chances are, or maybe from St Ives, you drove past quite a few synagogues on your way here. If you drove in from the southwest of Sydney, chances are you drove past quite a few mosques on your way here. Wherever you came from in Sydney, I'm sure you drove past many churches to come here. And each of these faiths recognise Abraham as their father. In fact, you wouldn't be able to understand modern civilisation without understanding this guy. 
before we even get to a religious and theological significance of his life. But of course, Muslims, Christians and Jews interpret the Abraham stories differently. So before we look at today's talk, I'm going to set up methodology. And I've brought along, metaphorically, three sets of glasses. Now, for those of you who wear glasses, you'll understand what I'm talking about. The first set of glasses that I want to put on, and I know it's very faint up there, but that's the first set of glasses, are regular glasses. We're going to look at the Abraham story at the time of the events. And uh, we're going to spend, just in case you think the first point's going on for a long time, we're going to spend most of our time in that first point. After that, I'm going to take those pair of glasses off and I'm going to put on another pair of glasses, metaphorically. And they're reading glasses. The first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. And Moses lived 400 years after the time of Abraham. Now, this writing, therefore, has significance for the people of Moses' generation. So, with our reading glasses at the time of it being written, we're going to say, what does this story mean for Moses' generation? Then we're going to take those glasses off and we're going to put on, put on our final set of glasses, which are distance glasses, and we're going to look at this story of Abraham from a Christian perspective and we're going to say, what does this mean for us as New Testament Christians and what does this story mean at the time of Jesus? So, there are our three glasses. So, let's put on our regular glasses first. Let's put this into some context. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, sin has been spreading through creation. It wasn't just a problem with Adam and Eve, but then we had Cain and Abel and the murder that entered into the garden. We come to that horrendous verse in Genesis where God looks at all that he has created, and this is what it says if you read Genesis, he's sorry that he even made humankind. Sin and dysfunctionality is spreading to such a degree and only one family finds favour in the eyes of the Lord and that's the family of Noah. Sin continues to spread and by the time we get to Genesis 11 where we first meet this man Abram, we see that the people on the plains of Shinar are building a tower, it's called the Tower of Babel, to seek to reach to heaven. By human effort, people are trying to bridge the gap that has happened between heaven and earth. And God comes down and he destroys that tower. How are we going to solve the problem of this dysfunctionality in the world? Well, in Genesis 12, we see the problem of sin is going to be solved by election. Now, it's an election that focuses on Iraq. It's an election that focuses on Iraq because they have discovered weapons of mass destruction. Now, some Christians have problem with the whole doctrine of election. How come God only chooses one and why doesn't God choose everyone? Well, have you voted in federal elections, state elections? Why do you only choose one? Why don't you choose everyone? You know that the best way to to bless the whole of society is to make sure you have the right one. 
At the moment, in America, there's an election. It's focusing on Iraq. Probably most of us here don't get the right to vote. Who are you going to vote for if you did? Senator McCain? Hillary Clinton? Barack Obama? The whole world's watching this because we know that in the choosing of the one, ramifications will go out to the many. Well, what are the weapons of mass destruction that were found? Here they are. It's rape. It's murder. It's greed. It's abuse. And why did I say that this election focuses on Iraq? Because there's this town called Ur. It's very near to the modern-day city of Basra in southern Iraq. That's where it is. That's where Abram was living. And out of Ur of the Chaldees, God calls a man and he says to him, Abram, get in the car with me because I'm going to take you on a journey that is going to save the world. That's always been God's way. God has always been electing the one for the sake of the many. Uh, People think that this doctrine of election or of predestination is just a New Testament invention. It's certainly not. Right back from the beginning of the children of Adam, God chooses the line of Seth and not the line of Cain. And from the descendants of Seth, God chooses Noah and not the other families of the earth. And of the three sons of Noah, of Shem and Ham and Japheth, God chooses Shem and not Ham and Japheth. And of the descendants of Shem, God chooses Terah and his son Abram. And it even continues after the time of Abram. Because of the two sons of Abram, Ishmael and Isaac, God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. And of the two sons of Isaac, God chooses Jacob and not Esau. And of the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel, God chooses the line of Judah and not the other eleven. And of the line of Judah, God chooses David. And of the line of Judah, God chooses great David's greatest son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is none other than our Lord Jesus. God's purposes are to choose the one. And although election is in and of itself restrictive and selective, God's purposes is not to be restrictive and selective, but it is in choosing the one that he chooses to bless the many. If you don't believe in that, give up on democracy. We might have actually started to understand something of the wisdom of God. And God decides to choose the one in order to solve the dysfunctionality of the world. And you might say, well, why Abram? What's so special about this guy living in southern Iraq near the modern-day city of Basra? Is he a more righteous man? Is he a better man? Well, listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24, verse 2. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. That's down in Iraq. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other 
gods. At the time when God chooses Abram, Abram is an idolater. He's a moon worshipper. Why does God choose him? Why does God say, hop in the car with me? It's not because of any merit in Abram or Terah, his father. It's simply because of grace. It's simply because God is God and God can do what God will do with Abram and with his descendants. And so in a world without emails, in a world without mobile phones, with e- a world without even snail mail, Abram hops in the car and he leaves. Now, if you are not an Indigenous Australian, then all of your forebears have done that at some stage. Uh, my wife's mother uh, came to Australia because she's a German Jew in the wake of World War II. Maybe some of your forebears have come from Vietnam in the wake of the Vietnam War. Maybe they've come from Yugoslavia. Maybe they've had no choice and they've been chosen by the best judges in England to come out in the original convict fleets. I don't know where they came from, but it's no small thing, and certainly back then it is no small thing, to leave your family, to leave your culture, to leave all that you know and to go. But in verse 4, this is unusual, Abram's 75. That's not the age when people start to make a new life. I mean, they might be motivated to do it for the sake of their children, but if you know the story well, you know that Abram hasn't got any children. But at 75 he leaves, and it's not as though he's leaving a place that's war-torn and devastated. It's very interesting, those of you who study archaeology may know this, but in 1920, Sir Leonard Woolley, who, is, who was a famous British archaeologist, discovered Ur. And you can actually go and visit where Ur was. Uh, and when he discovered Ur, he found that it was a place of imposing buildings, spectacular royal graves. Uh, they had codified laws that were written in cuneiform script. There's elaborate craftsmanship in gold and silver. There's weapons, there's ornaments. It has all the markings of an advanced and luxurious civilization. He's not leaving there because life is bad. And to go out to the Canaanites, it's not for an improvement in lifestyle. But God says, hop in the car and I'm going to give you a promise. Now look at the promise. It's probably one of the most significant verses in the whole of scripture. You may have heard it before, but let's look at it again from uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. And as we go through here, I want you to count. I want you to count how many times you see the word blessing. Okay? Listen carefully. Or bless. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now there's three things in that promise. Firstly, he promises Abram a land. Secondly, he promises Abram children. You can't have a nation without having children. And thirdly, he promises Abram blessing. Now, how'd you go? How many times was the word mentioned? Five. Well done. Five times. Do you want to know some trivia? It's not trivia. I think it's significant. Blessing is the opposite of curse. 
since the fall in the garden in Genesis 3, do you know how often the word curse has appeared in the Hebrew Bible up to now? Five times. Five times we've seen in 3.14, Genesis 3.14, we see, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. In 3.17, we see God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In 4.11, after Cain has slain his brother Abel, God says, Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. We see again in 529 at the birth of Noah, Lamech, who is Noah's father, says, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. And then Noah says of his grandson Cain in 925, Cursed be Canaan. The dysfunctionality of the world is going to be reversed. God says to Abraham, Leave your family, I'll give you another family. Leave your land, I'll give you another land. And leave the curse and I will give you blessing. And so by faith, we read in Hebrews, Abraham hopped in the car and headed out with God. But once he got there to the land, when we get down to verses 6 to 8, things are still difficult. The Canaanites are in the land and the Canaanites are just not going to roll over and say, well, here you go, Abram, have the land. Uh, We give it to you now. That's not the way nations work. It's incredibly difficult. Incredible lot of uh, claiming the land. And we read in verse 7 that Abram is going around calling upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord. He builds altars all the way through the land, claiming it for the Lord And then we see in verse 9 that he does it all the way to the Negev. Let me explain how that means. When Abram comes into the land, he goes from Ur, he comes up here to Haran, and he comes down into the land from the north. The Negev is the very southern tip of the land. And so he builds altars through the land, through the land, through the land, in verse 9, all the way to the extremities of the land, all the way to the Negev. You know, I've met uh, so many evangelicals in Sydney who tell me that they're doing wonderful ministry in Sydney, and that's true, they are. And there's so much work to do in Sydney, and there is, but sometimes we just need to hear that call again saying, all the way to the Negev, to the very end of the land. Imagine if Paul had, uh, in Acts chapter 9, had gone along and he had met the risen Lord and he'd got to Damascus. Paul has been called to go to the Gentiles. But hey Lord, there's lots of work to do here in Damascus. I think I've just said about my ministry here in Damascus. It's not you yet, but it will be in a few years' time. I've met lots of people who are 75. You know lots of people who are 75. You know, and I've been involved in Christian ministry for 75 years now. It's time to hang up my boots. No, Abraham says, Moses is saying Abraham went all the way to the Negev. Right to the extent of the land, he continued to claim the land for the Lord. Now, if we finish the talk here, you'd have a great example of faith and works. Here's Abraham, he's done a really good thing, he's left, he's gone, he's obeyed, he's built altars 
and surely it's by faith and works that we are saved. But the passage doesn't end here and too often people actually preach on this passage and they get to verse 9 and then the wheels fall off and that's as far as we go. But look what happens next, it's really significant. In verse 10 there's a famine in the land and where does Abram go? Egypt. Now tell me again, what was the first part of that promise? Land. What does he do? He forsakes the promise. He forsakes the land. If that's not bad enough, look at verses 11 and 12. It's horrendous. We're on the way down to the land and he says to Sarai, Sarai, you're a good looking woman. Women like to hear that, don't they? Okay, she's, we know from uh, Genesis 17 that Sarai is 10 years younger than Abram, so we actually can work out that she's 65. And if you want to look at political incorrectness, have a look at the old commentators when they start to talk about how is it that Sarai managed to keep her beauty till she was 65 years of age. This is what Calvin says. Uh, Calvin says that women who don't have children age better than women who do. I didn't say it. <laughs> Calvin said it. Casuto, this is what Casuto says, uh, any woman who is able to have her first baby at 90 can certainly keep her looks till she's 65. <laughs> That's not bad either. But he says, Sarai, she's, she's good looking and so she probably feels good. So here's an idea. When we get down there, they're going to want you. So I'm going to say you're not my wife. I'm going to say you're my sister. The compliment doesn't work anymore, does it? And we actually know when he gets to the land that that actually happens. It is horrendous. What was the second part of the promise? Children. By whom was he going to have those children? Sarai. And he forsakes the second part of the promise in the most horrendous way. It is absolutely horrendous. Now, beauty is cultural, and when you get to my age, you'll realise that women actually grow in beauty, but you're not there yet. But just remember that for when you do get to 65. But Abraham is despicable, and he acquires great wealth, and all these camels and oxen, and they're all his, because Sarai's gone off to Pharaoh's household. And what's the third part of the promise? Blessing. And what does he forsake? He forsakes the blessing. In verse 17 you can see that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so these refugees are deported. And we see back in 13 verse 1, the very first verse, that he sends them away out of Egypt back to the land, back to the land of promise. Now, let me ask you a question. Now do you reckon that Abraham is saved because of his obedience? Now do you think that the promise of God is contingent on our response to it? This guy's horrendous. He has forsaken every part of the promise. But if God does not save Abraham because he's a good bloke, God is not going to use Abram because he's particularly good. It doesn't rest on our capricious character. What does it rest on? It rests on not the one who is chosen, but the faithfulness of the one who chooses. If you think it's all about you choosing God, then that's what it rests on. 
and I'm worried about the world. But if you think God chooses us, which the Bible does, it doesn't rest on our response. It rests on his faithfulness in his election. Abraham is not saved by works. Okay, I'm going to take these glasses off. They're gone. There's another set of glasses. I just put them back on. We're now going to the next point, which is the reading glasses. And you probably need them to read up there. 400 years has elapsed and we now are having this story written down by Moses. And when he writes this story, he's writing it for the people of his generation. Now, who was Moses? He led the people from, that's the one, Egypt, back to the land that had been promised to his forebear Abram. He wants, and if you go on an overseas trip, you're going to talk to people who've made the overseas trip before you. And he wants people to learn from the example of Abram, who we saw in chapter 13, verse 1, has actually made that trip 400 years prior before them. And the parallels, I hope you've noticed, the parallels as we've read through are stunning. Why does Abram go down to the land? Because there's famine. Why does Abram's grandson go down to Egypt? Again, because there's famine. When they're in the land, Abram acquires great wealth. Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, actually becomes the governor of the land. He too acquires great wealth. At the time when Abram leaves the land, Pharaoh is cross and God sends plagues in Genesis 12. Does that sound familiar in terms of what happens in Moses' generation? And when the Exodus generation under Moses is going back, they're saying, Moses, we're sick of walking in the desert. This is Moab. Isn't this far enough? This is Transjordan. We can see the land from here. This is Edom. This is good enough. Let's stop here. But Moses says that Abram built altars all the way to the Negev. And so they continue on. The people of, of Moses' generation are starting to grumble. They are starting to forget the promise of God. They're starting to say it was better for us back in Egypt. Why have you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? We're dying of hunger out here and all we're getting to eat is manna. We long for the cucumbers of Egypt. We're hungry. It would be so much better. And so Moses tells them the story of Abraham and how Abram too had forsaken the promise and God returned him back in the exodus of Genesis 13. You know, sometimes we're no different. We've left the Pharaoh of this world, if you call yourself a Christian. His name is Satan. And sometimes, although we talk about the fact that we have been taken from darkness to light... Sometimes we forget that and we look back and we actually think that there are bright lights back in Egypt. We actually think that, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, just think of all the sexual gratification that I could have. Just think about how I could fill in my fortnightly claim for youth allowance. Just think about all the money I could take under the table. Just think about how, I mean, life would be a lot better 
back in Egypt. We sometimes might go to a school reunion and we meet people who we wiped the floor with them when we were at school academically. I mean, we got into the University of Sydney, they didn't. And here we are, we actually absolutely wiped the floor with them, but we go to a school reunion five years out, ten years out, twenty years out, and you know what? Because we've decided to follow Christ, our life doesn't seem to be as good as theirs. Sometimes we forget what Egypt was really like. Sometimes we remember just how destructive and dysfunctional that it was. And like Moses' generation, we grumble. But Moses has his people coming through and Moses himself even doesn't arrive. But we actually have a second Moses. His name is Joshua. And eventually Joshua leads that generation back and he stands on the banks of the Jordan and he leads the people back into the land into the land that was promised to their father, Abram. Well, take off those glasses. I'm going to put on a third pair of glasses now. These aren't normal glasses. They're not reading glasses. These are now distance glasses. And we open the very first page of the New Testament. And when I get to Matthew chapter 1, it actually starts with a genealogy that starts back from Father Abraham. And as I read that in that story, I actually see in the next chapter in Matthew 2, I see that there's been sin in the land again. There's this guy called Herod and he's going around killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And so this couple, their name is Joseph and Mary and they have a baby whose name is Jesus. Where do they go? You know the story, that's right, they go to Egypt. And they wait in Egypt until Herod has died. And even when Herod dies and they come back to the land, they hear in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel that Archelaus, Herod's son, is now the king and he's just as cruel as dad. And so what happens is they go up to somewhere outside of the area of the 12 tribes, some place called Galilee and some little town called Nazareth. And that's where this boy Jesus grows up in exile. But then in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, oh, they wouldn't have called him Jesus, they spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. They would have called him Yeshua. Of course, Jesus is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua. Jesus is the second Moses whether it's the Jesus you read about in the book of Joshua or the Jesus you read about in Matthew or whether, it's, whether you want to call him Joshua, it's the same name. No wonder the angel was so specific in his name when he said in Matthew 1 verse 21 when the angel appeared to Joseph and said you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus stands on the banks of the Jordan again ready to lead his people back into the land that was promised to Abram that he would build a mighty nation not bound by ethnicity and geography. Now Jesus talked about this nation as the kingdom of God and as he was baptised in the Jordan by his, by his cousin so he was anointed for a task that would be the fulfilment 
of the promise that was given to Abram. Because ultimately, people would crucify him. The most horrendous sin that the world has ever committed, crucifying the innocent Son of God. Can sin thwart the promises of God? Could Abram saying, she's not my wife, she's my sister, could that thwart the promises of God? Could the time of Moses' generation, where the people were grumbling and longing for the cucumbers of Egypt, could that thwart the promises of God? Here's an amazing thing. Could putting down a religious movement by crucifying its leader thwart the promises of God? Let me ask you now, what does it depend upon? You choosing God or him electing Abraham? And so we see that Jesus is exiled for us. He goes outside of the city and he takes the sin. He takes the dysfunctionality. The one who Matthew depicts for us as coming up out of Egypt and entering into the land just as Abram had, just as Moses had, just as the people did when they came back from exile. The theme is repeated again and again in the scripture. So he solves the problem of dysfunctionality. Paul puts it like this. Listen carefully in Galatians 2 verses 13 and 14. What's the problem? The problem is the curse. Listen to this passage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The curse has been dealt with in the promise of Abram and to his seed who ultimately becomes the Lord Jesus who takes the curse for us as cursed is everyone who is hanged upon a tree and therefore if he has taken the curse what can we receive? The blessing of God. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God's unfolding purposes. God came not just to rescue you from Egypt. He came in his son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue you from yourself. To rescue you from the dominion of darkness and the dysfunctionality of this world. And so, we're hopping in the car. Well, I hope you're hopping in the car. If you're not in the car yet, let me tell you, it's the best place to be. If you're in the car, let me encourage you to stay there. And we're travelling from the slavery to sin to liberation. We're travelling from death to life and to resurrection. We're travelling from a place of judgement to a place of renewal. And so we become the children of promise. In Genesis 12, God is not telling the people of Israel that they are the elite. He's not telling Christians that they are the elite. They know better than anybody else. But what he is telling us, if we flee to Jesus, is that we are the elect. 
and God chooses to bestow his grace. It is all of God. It is all of his faithfulness. And there's only one way that you can respond to that. It's not by works. It's by faith. And it's by faith alone. And to get in the car and to travel with God. Let's close in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the coherence of the Bible. We thank you that that story of Abram and Sarai is repeated again as we see how your people through sin have gone into exile and yet you have led them, led them back to the place of blessing. We thank you that it was fulfilled in the Exodus generation but we thank you above all that it has found its ultimate fulfilment in none other than the sinless Son of God who took the curse for the dysfunctionality of this world upon himself and has paid the price. Save us, we pray, from our arrogance that would tell us that it is because of our response to you and teach us to trust in your faithfulness and your faithfulness alone to trust in the call and our Father we pray that understanding that, that you would lead us into a life that is marked by faith and by faith alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.